This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Mario Martinez for part two of our conversation on his new book, The Mind-Body Code. Mario Martinez is a clinical neuropsychologist who lectures worldwide on how cultural beliefs affect health and longevity. He's the founder of Biocognitive Science, a new paradigm that identifies complex discoveries of how our cultural beliefs affect our immune, nervous, and endocrine systems. With Sounds True, Mario Martinez has written the new book, The Mind-Body Code, how to change the beliefs that limit your health, longevity, and success, in which he challenges the reader to embrace a radically new paradigm for health and well-being and reveals the way our cultural beliefs impact our immune system. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Mario and I spoke about healthy centenarians, people who live to be a hundred, and the four essential beliefs that healthy centenarians share. We also talked about how different cultures hold different views of the aging process and how these views impact our health. Finally, we talked about forgiveness, not only as an act that liberates love in our lives, but how forgiveness also impacts the state of our health. Here's part two of my conversation with the author of The Mind-Body Code, Mario Martinez. I'm here with Mario Martinez for part two of our conversation on The Mind-Body Code. And Mario, I want to talk about your work with healthy centenarians, people who have lived to be 100 or longer. You even talk about lessons you've learned from super centenarians, people who have lived to be 110 or older. And I'd be curious to know, right from the beginning, why you started talking to centenarians and tell us a little bit about the background of your work. Yeah, all, all of these uh, wonderful things that happen in science are serendipitous or by, by mistake. Uh, when I was a kid, I, 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 saw, I saw a few centenarians and they always attracted people to them. And, and it defied the concept of uh, uh, getting um, feeble-minded and, and weak. These people were strong. They, they kept working. They, they made you want to grow old rather than what we have with some people that we look at, and, God, if this is getting, growing old. And then I, I saw that there were some centenaries who were not in very good shape. I mean, they were living almost in a vegetable state. And I thought, no, what I want to find out is, is what, what makes people healthy, and why is it that science uh, studies the normal curve and the average age is so much in a culture, and on this side you have uh, people that die younger, people that die uh, much older, and they call those two uh, edges nuisance variables. They're not included in the science of analysis of variance. So what I wanted to go with is to the right side, the outliers on the right side. What do these people do? And, and, and my training was very biologically based, so I thought it was got to be genetics. And they even have some science that says, or some um, studies that say, well, it's the, uh, um, the genes that they have, the, the Methuselah gene, one of them they call popularly. So I went with that mindset that, that this is genetic. And as I start looking into their history and their family and so forth, I find out that after over 400, plus the literature supports it, the good literature, 20, 25% is, is genetic. The rest is, uh, is what I call biocultural, how they live, how they break away from those cultural portals that, that we've talked about, how they don't consider middle age. You ask them, what's middle age? And they say, that's dumb. You'll find out when you die. I don't know what middle age is. So they don't buy into the cultural portals that put you in and age you. And Ellen Langer has done a lot of work in, at, at Harvard 
in looking at context and uh, why is it that some people who look significantly younger than their age uh, and other people that look significantly older than their age and it was thinking the thinking was well genetics what they found was that one factor determined the difference where you identify yourself in middle age the ones who look younger thought that middle age started years later so you, you're you're creating markers for your bioinformational field to say, well, this is the way down. And and the culture will tell you, okay, not only are you middle-aged now, but you need to be thinking about things that that young people don't think about. And you need to be attributing. Uh, attribution is really important biocognition, which is the cost that we give to things. So, for example, you are in a portal of middle age, or let's say a little older than middle age. You can't have a sports car anymore because as a, what's this old guy or this old mm -hmm. woman doing with yeah. that car? So the portal is already setting you up for failure. The first time you your back hurts or the first time you have some problems, uh, I'm too old for this. And you give up the joy, you buy a bigger car and you enter the tunnel of, of helplessness of, I need uh, now anti-inflammatories. That's how you, you age. So the context will age you. And centenarians, what I found is that they don't buy into those contexts. Uh, and, and they live in the present, the very present centered, but they have a bright future. One, 102. I love your garden. Oh, yeah, it's great, but wait till you see it in five years. <laughs> At 102. Um, some of them are learning languages when they, when they hit 100. And, and what does the culture tell you? What do you want to learn a language yeah, from? You've no, got to be no, around. No, let me ask you a very direct question, Mario. As I've been aging, I've been hearing from more and more people, people in their 60s, 70s, you know, oh my God, I never thought I'd slow down so much. I never thought my body would start going through all of these changes. And I don't have the energy I used to have, Tammy. I'm not, I don't want to fly as much. I don't want to go places. And I've noticed the more I've heard reports from people in their 60s and 70s about their experience of aging, the more I've started to come up with this picture of what it's going to be like. Yes. And, you know, I better go do that exciting outdoor adventure trip soon because by the time I'm, you know, 70, which isn't that far away, I'm not going to want to, not going to have the energy to do it. Are you telling me that by hearing these reports that I've been hearing from people I know, people who seem pretty health-minded and active, that they're experiencing this diminishment mm -hmm. of strength and power, I'm hearing these reports and I'm putting together a picture in my mind. Am I selling myself short by doing that? Yes, and it's coming from bad science. There's good science that, that, uh, that defies that. The attribution, again, is very important. They don't realize that they're buying the attribution. And Ellen Langer, again, has done a lot of work, and other people have done a lot of work in that area, and they find that it's culture. For example, memory. As you grow older, your memory, um, you have memory deficit. Not true. What happens, though, is that you begin to identify yourself with the... Uh, older mindset. You say, oh, I, oh, I went to the kitchen. What, what am I doing? I don't remember. Uh, Alzheimer's. Go back to where you came from and you'll remember. If you're 20, you say, I forgot. That's number one. And number two is that the tests that are set up for, to measure the deterioration of aging are biased against the, the, the elder. Um, there was some research that also Ellen Langer did also where they, um, they, she looked at the tests that were biased against the, the, the elder. And when they did the test, the, the younger people did better with memory. But then they changed that around and they looked at context and interest. And they gave a test where people had to read something. And it was something like um, Frank Sinatra, what kind of music did he like, the stock market. When they tested, the, the elder did better with memory than the younger. Because it ha what happens as you grow older, you become more selective. And you don't pay attention to the things that don't matter to you. So if they ask you about it, you forgot it. Your context and your selectivity increases. You go from um, simple to complex rather than from order to disorder. Because biology borrowed a model from Newtonian physics, which works really well, well with uh, carburetors, tables, and planets. It doesn't work well with, with living beings. Uh, and the Newtonian physics says entropy. You go, any system goes from order to disorder. And we buy that. In my model, and in the model of good science, uh, you go from simple to complex. The brain becomes more complex, more selective, more parsimonious. 
you don't this is why you can't do well in the army when you join at 50 you join at 19 at 19 you take anything oh am i going to get up in in the middle of the night and take a cold shower i'm not going to do that why because you're more selective you know yourself better and you protect yourself better so the thing about this getting back to what you're saying it's very important that you begin to look at attribution anytime that you get an old attribution i'm getting old let me give you an example when i was 20 i had to take um, you know phys ed um, tests and i had to swim two laps i vomited i couldn't do it now i swim a mile and i don't tell my age but it doesn't matter i'm a lot older than 20. so does it mean that i'm deteriorating or i'm becoming more complex it's what you do but since, since what people will buy that let's say your friends will buy that Ah, oh, I don't have as much energy. Okay, what are you going to do about it? Osteoporosis and things like that can be changed with, with birth training for women. Uh, the interpretation of menopause will give you inflammation or not. Um, the, the women in, in some South American countries, especially Peru and Bolivia, consider the hot flashes bochorno, which means shame. And we know that the immune system responds with pro-inflammatory um, molecules and it causes inflammation. In Japan and in China, they call it the second spring, when the woman comes into her power, her knowledge, and they're, they're, they're respected. No inflammation in the uh, Asian countries, high inflammation in the Latin American countries. Why? Because it's a bioinformational field and bioinformational response of the immune system. So if you buy that, then yeah, you, you fall into what I call the tunnel of helplessness, where they give you an onset of an illness, they give you a process, they, they give you a prognosis, and, 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 and you bought into it. And once you buy into it, you're in. Okay, okay. so I'm going to ask my question yet again, just because I really want to hammer this home and, and make sure I'm understanding you. So I've heard people say things like, yeah, you know, the aging process, we're kind of like a car. And as time goes on, the car just kind of breaks down. And you have to just be real about that, Tammy. The car is going to break down. It's mechanical. The, you know, the pieces are going to start to fall off and not work as well. Do you believe that is simply a cultural belief, an attribution? Yes, but, but, but also supported by bio, a biological model borrowing from, from Newtonian physics, from things. Things break and oxidize. We, uh, we have a, a, a new liver after a few weeks. Uh, our, our taste buds are completely different after 21 days. And that's one thing that I do, for example, when working with people who are, who are obese. Your taste buds, 21 days, they're used to sugar and fat. If you change the things that we need to change in 21 days, it'll be a new taste buds. It won't go to the nucleus accumbens and, and get you uh, hooked like you were before because it's a different set. So cars can't do that. There's no question that there is some diminishing of functions. I would say 10%. The rest is biocultural. Wow. Are you familiar with cultures that have a different view of the aging process and what it looks like then for people yes. in those cultures? What Can you give me some examples? Yes, of for Okinawa and, and Japan, uh, Vilcabamba, Ecuador, and, and many other caucus. And consistently, they see growing older and it's, as an opportunity to do more. They're not caretakers. That's another thing that's really important. They're not caretakers. They don't, uh, caretakers don't do well health-wise. Uh, because they don't know how to set benign limits for themselves. They take care of everybody. My, my, my aunt died of uh, colon cancer. As I was taking her to the hospital when she was dying, she called me to the um, uh, bed and she said, I don't know if the ambulance uh, <laughs> ride, uh, the driver had any dinner tonight. Could you answer? Yeah. Is that a dying. real story? No, right? it's a real story. Oh, she, my God. And I, my God, you know. And yeah. what happens when you're that way? You create an immunological system weak and precancer cells grow. Now, is cancer caused by cancer cells? No. It's caused by the co-authoring of cancer cells and a weak immune system. So it's a co-authoring always. We always mix cause and effect. Okay. So back to the aging process. If I don't want to get caught in our culture's myths about aging, do you recommend that I not even really worry about 50, 60, 70 as birthdays. I mean, you know, right now, those are big events. Those are big events where people, I crossed the threshold into 50 or 60. And that, that then brings with it a whole worldview of what that means. What do you recommend I do on the 50th, well, 60th, 70th birthdays? Don't fight it. Let it come in. And when it comes in, oh, culture portal. Uh, what am I feeling now? I'm feeling weaker. Do something about it. 
my brain is not working as fast. Do something about it. Uh, exercise to learn with a, a burst training to to increase for for women, especially the uh, uh, the bone mass. What well, what is that burst, burst training? Yeah. Is, uh, uh, you, you notice when you when you look at uh, marathon runners how, that they look very thin, and and some of them even drop dead when they're running. And you look at uh, sprinters, and they're strong. What we know now is that when you do, um, let's say, run very fast, as fast as you can for two minutes, and you stop and you take 30 seconds and you do it again. And in those 30 seconds, your body begins to secrete human growth hormones, which are the, the, uh, the hormones that actually repair tissue, help with the proteins for the, uh, for the building of muscles. That's, what I, that's one of the things that I use for fibromyalgia. So again, going back to the aging, what you do is you, you challenge the culture belief that, that, that you, you were taught, and then you begin to Look for the things that, that you're questioning and look for evidence. Uh, am I working out? No. All right. If I'm not working out, then of course I'm going to be weak at 70 or, or at 50 or at, at 20. There are kids who, are, who have terrible cardiovascular system at 20 because they eat bad food and they, uh, they have a um, sedentary life. There's nothing to do with it. And that's very hard to sell because people say, look at the evidence. And I'll say, look at my evidence with the centenarians that I work with. Look at the evidence of the things that, that Ellen Langer is doing. Look at the evidence that other people like uh, Richard Davison is doing with uh, functional MRIs. Uh, an example, it was thought because of the model of deterioration that as time passes, you deteriorate. So when you look at a young brain, it's very, it's very lateralized. The left side for right-handed people, are, are, it's usually language and the other one's more visual-spatial. But as you grow older, when you do an MRI, you see less lateralization. So gerontology, which studies the pathology of aging, says, see, this is evidence. This brain is getting, getting older. Richard Davison works with um, Tibetan lamas who have had more than 10,000 hours of, of meditation. And when they go into deep meditation, the brain goes into that non-lateral um, processing. So does that mean that they aged? It means that there was complexity. And when they come out of it, whether they're 80 or 50, they all go to, into that non-lateralization. When they come out of it, it lateralizes again, and you can learn to lateralize the brain again if you want to. So th that's the good science. The bad science is the, uh, what, is, uh, what is the gerontology study? The pathology of aging. What did I study in neuropsychology? The pathology of the brain. We, we knew that the brain couldn't do something when it broke in that area. But when you look at the healthy brain, not only does it not work in that area, or work in that area, but it works a lot more in many other things that you can't see with a pathology, a pathology model. So, so what I suggest is that that you break from that. You create the subcultures that, but but you can't just say. And here's what wishful thinking doesn't work. Oh, I'm ageless, I'm fine, and you don't do anything about it. No, it's not going to work. You have to have subcultures that, for example, let's say you don't like to work out. Uh, you walk. You whatever it is that you want to do, you do more each time, either more quantity or more quality. So when I swim, I, I swim about three or four times a, a, a week, I either increase my laps or I increase the speed of my laps or I pay more attention to what I'm thinking when I'm doing my laps. It's infinite. The, the benign middle is infinite. Mm -hmm. And that's another way to work with uh, uh, obesity and, and addictions and compulsions. Now, in the book, The Mind-Body Code, you talk about four essential beliefs that you discovered healthy centenarians have. And I, I thought it would be useful to go over these four essential beliefs. The, the first one you write is that growing older is the passing of time. Aging is what we do with time based on cultural beliefs. So talk about that difference and how healthy centenarians relate to time. I'm glad you brought that up because those are, that's how you train yourself into centenarian consciousness, those four centenarian consciousness and premises. That is that, that you, you need time to, uh, to grow older. That's it. Time, you grow older. You're 20, 25. What you do with that time based on your culture beliefs is the actual aging, 90%. What you do with those culture beliefs, where does that evidence come from? From other cultures? Uh, that be that believe and support with their with their way of dealing with the world, that it, that is not like that. 
that it doesn't work that way. But there, there are cultures in Europe, for example, that Social Security will give you a cane automatically when you turn 55. Really? Because eventually you're going to need it. What an attribution. A cultural editor selling, say, saying to you, you're going to need this, you will need it. Look at people who walk with, with canes and you see some that don't really need it. They're walking fine and they're using the cane without any function because they, they were told that they need the cane. What do you do if you, if you ha have to use a cane? Don't use it till you need it. Hold it, walk, and if you need it, you use it. What happens? You begin to change the attributions and you begin to, to change the, 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 bio the biology will follow the attributions of the culture. Now, one thing I'm reflecting on as you're talking is I'm thinking of my own elderly mom and I'm thinking of her comments about the aging process. And she's thoroughly convinced that her suffering is part of the aging process. And I'm just curious, how do you think one could talk to someone else? Like, we're talking about how I'm going to become, or whoever's yes. listening is going to become a healthy centenarian if they question these beliefs. But how do you talk to somebody who's deeply attached to believing in the aging process? Great question. The challenging questions are really good. First, by you modeling that behavior to let her know that that's not that way. And then second, experientially, get her to talk. Uh, stories are really powerful in changing beliefs. And ask her, who was the healthiest person in, in your family? Uh, she'll say, uncle, whatever. And who lived the longest? And who was the healthiest? What were they like? And what you're doing is you're giving her information. Okay, what if there are no good examples? You keep going, and there, there okay. are some. You, you, there's always somebody. Someone you knew or Yeah, something. somebody you knew. Yeah. Yeah, that's a key. You, you don't stop there. You, you, we call in psychology testing the limits. You go beyond. I, I'll give you an example. A, a patient who had been sexually abused by her father for years, I mean, she couldn't find anything. Uh, when little girls are going home to see what they're going to do and play, she was wondering how she could avoid her dad because he was going to abuse her. Couldn't find anything. So as we keep working on it, not intellectually, under relaxation, one day it was snowing, and her next-door neighbor, a, a little elderly lady, said, come here. And she gave her some chocolate and cookies. That's all she needed to break away from that conceptual view of the world that, that, that nothing good could happen to you. Yeah. After she did that, a few weeks later, she left home at 15 and went on her own. So we need somebody to validate what we want to believe. Yeah. And then we need to give evidence to what we want to believe. Otherwise, it's just wishful thinking. It doesn't work. Yeah. So we can, in our own lives, too, find models yes. of this type of growing older, if you will, without buying into the aging process and then really pay attention to those models. And pay attention. Because if I said to you, well, just think and it's good for you, it yeah. doesn't work. That would be deceiving. Yeah. There's a lot of evidence out there that you can live and see, well, how, and that's what I've done with Centenary. How, how does this person do it? And, and then as you start talking to them, you see how they do it. And you see that, the, and, and another thing they say is, hanging out with older people is not good. All they talk about is, is getting, getting sick and getting old. I, I hang out with young people only. And they have another interesting way of saying, they say, look at that old guy walking. And that, that old guy could be 30 years younger. <laughs> so they have a perception that they're not old. But yeah. they live it. They don't just say I'm not old. They live not being old which is the key, I think. So we're talking about this first principle for healthy centenarians, and it has to do with their relationship to time and the aging process. And one of the quotes from the book is, we can shift our mindset from passing time to engaging space. Yes. I thought that was very intriguing. Tell us what you mean by that. And, and that does reverse the process, I think. The passing of time... It's a way of, um, it has a, a continuum of accumulation. And if you think that the accumulation is bad, you'll accumulate the bad. But the, but the, uh, the actually being in the space, living the space, doesn't have the time component in it. You, you're in a space, in, a, in, in kind of an ageless space. And your conceptual brain will say, I'm not passing time, I am occupying space. And, and you take away the attribution that, it, okay, the, that 20 years now, another 20 years have gone by. I've been in a space for, no, time space, you take time off and you leave space. And that may seem very subtle. It may seem uh, that it really doesn't have a lot, of, a lot of substance, but it does in the way you conceptualize things. So I'm occupying space. I'm not accumulating time. 
-hmm. And what happens qualitatively? As you're occupying space and you don't worry about the accumulating time, you do things in the occupation of the space, independent of the age, and then you indirectly break away from the portal of middle age and I'm getting older and I can't go to college and finish my degree, those kind of things, because it's space. It's non-time. Yeah. Now, one of the things I've noticed people seem to get kind of tripped up on is this idea of average lifespan. Oh, yes. And, you know, using a lifespan calculator and saying, you know, according to my, to the average lifespan for a woman or a man in, you know, the United States, I have this many days left or something. Do you just recommend avoiding that way of thinking altogether? Yes. Do I create 100 as my new projected lifespan or I'm just not even thinking that way? No, I, th I think that's predatory, bad science because it's an average. Uh, those actuarial never look at that because it's bad science. It's based on the average. There's no such thing as an average person. That person comes from an average, a statistical model of average. So if you buy that, you're, you've been told, uh, if you live for this, you're going to live this. That's an average. And yet they're giving it to you as if it's the, the fundamental essence of who you are. So what I would do is, if you're in that space rather than in time, you don't worry about uh, whether you're 100 or 20 or whatever. That's what the space does. It takes you out of the accumulation of time. Mm -hmm. and then you're free. Uh, how long are you going to live? I don't know. What's middle age? I'll find out. You let me know when I die. You know, you just like you don't get, get into that at all. At all. Like and that's that. what I learned from them, that, that they live a space, they don't live a time. Okay, the second principle you talk about for centarian mindfulness, healthy centarian mindfulness, is that the present moment is never too late to make commitments. Tell me what you mean by that. If, again, if you go back to the space and you're 90 and I talked to a 90-year-old, and he wanted to learn German. The present is never too late to make a commitment. The culture will say, 90? Your brain doesn't work that well anymore. Why don't you just think about just relaxing and, and, and don't worry about it? And actually, what the, lang what the language acquisition will do is it'll, it'll speed up the, the, the health of the brain. Hmm. Uh, and so, so the present is never too late to make commitments. Uh, and, and, and if you live in, in time and space, there's going to be a time where, where the present is too late. But if you live in space, I know you're living in time and space, but if you live in space consciousness, yeah. then it doesn't matter. Uh, in fact, uh, it's great if you want to go back. And, and, and there's some evidence that shows that if you go back to college at 70, you'll do better than somebody in their 20s because you go back to college by choice, not because daddy and mommy want you to go. And you don't know what you want and you want to play. At 70, you're there, and you, want to, and, and you come up with some really good grades, and you study. What does that say about the, the science of deterioration? Totally flip-flops. Mm -hmm. So I could be 80, 90, and I could plan a trip around the world in a couple years or yeah, something like exactly. that. No problem. you got to be careful, because you only have 60 years to live, so make, you know, make good plans. <laughs> listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Okay, the third essential belief for healthy centenarian consciousness is that illnesses are learned, the causes of health are inherited. Okay, this is a little hard for me to understand, so help me understand this. Illnesses are learned, the causes of health are inherited. Okay, about 3% of illnesses are, are, are genetic mistakes. That's it. It's how it happens. The rest is learned in a sense that you, you don't create the illness. It's uh, by consciously saying you're going to get sick. What you do with your world, how you live your world, and the environment that you live, the food that you live, that's how you teach an illness. Now, why is it the causes of health? Because we, as uh, modern homo sapiens, we've been around for 100,000 years. 100,000 years of evidence and, and experience in, in maintaining our health. In fact, there's, there's some work 
that looks at if you're 90 healthy and you're 60 not so healthy, uh, your, your probability of staying healthy at 90 is higher than 60 because you have more experience with being healthy. Your, your body has more experience with being healthy. So how do you learn an illness? Let's say, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to oversimplify, so I don't want to... That's good. That'll work for yeah, me. I don't, I don't want to you know, say that it's so easy because okay. then uh, uh, some, some physicians will say, oh, you're, this is, this is uh, charlatanism. No, this is science. This is good science. You are in a, in a family that has a history of cancer. Okay. Right. You already have that, that predisposition in your head and genetically. And that history of, of, uh, of cancer has a personality that goes along with it caretakers, afraid of risking and upsetting other people, um, living in a world of fear, not really trusting their abilities that they have to, to come out of the pale, all of that. What does that do? That teaches your immune system to be in a helpless mode. You do that for many years. You teach your immune system that precancer cells free range. So your probability of developing that cancer is a lot higher than somebody who doesn't buy into that and begins to look at Uncle Joe didn't die of cancer. He was 90 and he died in his sleep. What did he do? How did he live? And you begin to look at the variables that have to do with either triggering the propensity or not triggering the propensity. So, so you're, you're learning things or you're teaching your body things that may not be in your body's best interest is how you and I, you know, I can give you more examples, but basically what, what you're, and, and you never blame yourself when you have an illness, it happened. But what you can do with the help of professionals who do good science to help you, let me, let me give an example. Uh, an example when, when somebody uh, is told that, uh, that they have this illness, they say, well, based on the prognosis, you have two years to live. So get your things in order, that's a sentencing. What is this, the good science behind that? That's a normal curve. That normal curve is saying you have, in that illness, you have two years on the average. On the other side of the curve, you have six weeks. But on the other side of the curve, you have 10 years. So what does a, 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 a responsible professional do, uh, do? This is the average. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at the other side of the curve of people who actually, with your illness, have lived 10 years. Let's find out and let's learn from these people, and I'm going to help you, and I'm going to teach you ways to, to live like, uh, like the out, outliers. Responsible science, but it's not sentencing. It's giving hope. When you, when you kill the hope, you kill the person. Okay, so illnesses are learned. I think you've explained that some, but the causes of health are inherited. Help me understand that part. Well, because since the immune system is constantly learning... Um, like, for example, you have a, a particular bacteria or virus, not only does it fight it, but it learns to fight it better next time. And you uh -huh. pass that on uh, in, in, a, in an epigenetic way. So we have more, uh, in fact, we have uh, some um, immunological cells that, that our ancestors didn't have. The natural killer cells and, and that, are, that are more primitive uh, 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 were there, but the T cells were not there. So what's happening is that we're developing a more complex system of protecting ourselves and, and living out the, the, the causes of health rather than, than, than the immune system being a protector. The immune system, as I see it, is a, it, it confirms the reality and the consciousness that you live. So we are, as homo sapiens in the 21st century, we have better immunology than, than people uh, 2000 BC. Okay, so help me understand how to translate this third belief that you found healthy centenarians have in common into how someone who wants to be a healthy centenarian would view their potential illness that they might have inherited from their family. How would they view their health? How would they view having a health challenge in their 70s or 80s? Well, this, the, same, the same model of, of evidence, it has to be evidence-based. Who in my family didn't have this illness, and how were they different, uh -huh. number one. Number two, what are the causes of health? Okay, we have causes of health. What are the causes of health that I learned from centenarians? Knowing how to forgive, knowing how to set benign limits, uh, knowing to value yourself, that healthy narcissism that, that, that George Solomon coined, 
uh, learning that as you grow older, you can be more excited about yourself and other people. Learning that, accepting that your brain becomes more complex rather than more deteriorating. And all those things set you up into a, an evidence-based model that says to you, okay, I'm, I'm going to look for evidence on that, and I'm going to um, look into the outliers in your illness that have um, outlived the average that, that, that you're sentenced with. Those are practical tools. But you need culture editors that support that. If you have a doctor that says to you, no, no, that's nonsense, that, that's, just, that's, that's how it is, you're going to die, find somebody else. Find another doctor that's going to say, hey, I'm a scientist. A doctor that says that, or a psychologist, any profession that says that, and not if it's not a scientist, it's a technician. Mm -hmm. Technicians believe what they can measure. Scientists are open to questions. If you can prove to me that this works, great, let's do it. That's the kind of uh, physician that you want, the kind of uh, healthcare person that you want, because they'll support your innovations and your, your, and your studies and, um, rather than, than killing it and giving you a nocebo effect. I pronounce you non-hope. Yeah. You have no hope. Yeah. Kills you. Now, you know, in the first part of our conversation on the mind-body code, you talked about how for some people they'd rather die than set limits, than learn how to set limits. And you brought this up again here in the context of our conversation about healthy centenarians. And I'm reflecting on that idea. Wow, setting limits. This is an actual huge human challenge. It is. And one that... Uh, I'm going to have to get good at in order to be strong and healthy. So talk to me a little bit about why this is so hard for people and how you can help us set limits. Well, part of it now that you know the, the idea and the theory, the collectivism doesn't allow you to set uh, personal limits very well because you're working for the collective good. Right. Second, when we teach assertiveness, we only teach the first part of assertiveness, which is set limits. The second part is... I am going to set limits, and I'm going to give you permission to not like it. Aha. Uh -huh. Because if you don't do that, you acquiesce and you go back. I don't like it. Okay, I'll give you permission to not like it. Okay? Right. Yeah. That's real important. And then, and then you work. Each one of them has their own dynamics. So I have to tolerate the discomfort yes. of you not liking me setting these limits. Yes. And, and where does it come? And is there a wound? Is there an archetypal wound? When I, when, when, if I say, no, Tammy, I really can't do this, and, and you get upset... Um, and, and, and I tell you, uh, okay, you know, just, you can get upset. Uh, then I have to look at what it is that I'm afraid of that I have to f deal with so that I don't make you somebody that doesn't like me. Yeah. You want people to respect you rather than like you. Respect you not in a fear way, but, but in, a, in an honorable way. So I'd rather be respected than liked. Because to be liked is to have to buy into the manipulation that comes with the liking. Yeah. So, you know, you're, you're, you're a little slave of being yeah. liked. Yeah, okay. Now, the fourth commitment for healthy centenarian consciousness, and you briefly touched on this, forgiveness. And you write, forgiveness is a liberating act of self-love. And you have a whole chapter, actually, in the book. The chapter is called Forgiveness as Liberation from Self-Entrapment. You see how it's an owning. You have to own it. Yes, you're right. I dedicated a whole chapter because it's such a complex and misunderstood concept, forgiveness. And if you think of it, let's say our psychological space or bioinformational space, we bring the predator in there, and we're the director of the play, and we give him a uh, we give him a place in that play. So the change doesn't occur out there. The change has to occur with the director of the play. You have to recontextualize. And what have we done? We have given that person permission to disempower us. They disempowered us. What do you work on? Not on forgiving the person but on re-empowering yourself in that psychological space that you created that person. What would happen if that person's dead? How can you forgive somebody who's dead? How can you work it through? How, how can you confront somebody who raped you and, and you say, uh, I forgive you, and then he says, well, uh, and, and uh, he says, well, next time I see you, I'm going to rape you again. In fact, I was doing a workshop once, and this uh, participant was saying, oh, I can forgive anyone. Okay, all right, let's, let's do this. Somebody raped you, and you can forgive that person. And uh, you say, well, then I'm Christ-like or Buddha-like. I'm going to let you go, and I'm going to... Let's play it out. And I, yeah. and I played the rapist. And I said, well, you know what? I'm glad you forgave me. It doesn't matter. But next time I see you, I'm going to rape you again. Worse than the first time I raped you. What do you feel? And this person said, I feel a lot of anger. 
So you see how you can't forgive that way. You have to forgive within your space, but not the predator. The predator has nothing to do with it. The predator is, is uh, non-essential. Your re-empowerment, that's what I talk about in the chapter on the, the alpha event and the omega event that you go through. You first have to identify what wound that person created, how do you heal that wound, and then how, and this is really important because there's some therapies that tell you, you can thank the predator because they taught you to be tough. That's nonsense. You, you, the predator continues to be a predator. What you do is you learn to value what you learned from what you did. So for example, if the predator hurt you in a way that was uh, shameful, what honor did you learn, not from that, but in general in life, what kind of honor did you learn that actually you can apply to the, to the, to the wound? So it doesn't have to be even, I mean, you don't even have to go to the, to, to the wound and where you honor when the wound. It, it's, it's a bioinformational consciousness of honor that you, that you own up. It automatically empowers you. And the predator is secondary. Okay, okay. so I want to unpack this a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's complex. Yeah. So you talked about there being an alpha and an omega event as part of how you teach the forgiveness process. So tell me what the alpha and the omega event when you go through the process of the liberation, the alpha is the recognition that you have lived your healing field, the recognition. You, you recognize that although you were shamed, you have lived honorable moments in your life. So you, all of you wasn't disempowered. You were only disempowered in a certain part. So as you do that, because bi um, biocognition is all indirect. Mind-body code is all indirect, like, like a send cone. What's the color of the wind? You know, that kind of thing. So as you realize that you are still empowered, even though you were disempowered in a particular area, you recognize that that's a first step of liberation. Okay, so let's take a concrete example. Okay. And if you would, if you'd be willing to take something from your own life, sure. I think that would be interesting. Sure. And then tell me what the alpha and the, and then we'll go into the omega event, were in the forgiveness process in your own experience. Okay. Let's say the, we talked about earlier about the uh, abandonment. Yeah. Okay. I felt abandonment of my dad. I was disempowered because the disempowerment is that you're not worthy of being committed to. So... The alpha event was the realization, the mind-body realization that I had made commitments in my life. I, uh, I, I did this and I did that. I went to college. I'd, and, and that, what it does is it recontextualizes your concept that you, you can't commit because you're not worthy of being committed. So that's the alpha event, the recognition that you are still empowered, although you gave up your power in a certain area. That's the first okay. step, alpha. It sets you up for the, that's empowerment. And then second, the Omega event is when you feel gratitude, personal gratitude for what you've done in that empowerment. And gratitude is an emotion that's very exalted, very evolved. And gratitude allows you to receive whatever you're doing, learning, whatever. If you want to learn something well, give yourself 30 seconds of gratitude and you'll see that the, the brain opens up. It's a mind-body code for openness and for, for assimilation. So the Omega event liberates you because one empowers you and the other one says, not only am I empowered, but I'm worthy of being empowered. So Boom. just to underscore, you're not grateful that this thing happened. No. You're grateful for your strength, nobility, your capacity for healing. That's yes. what you're grateful for. Your recognition of, your, of, your, uh, of what you did, gratitude to you. And you notice that I didn't mention the predator or I didn't mention the person who hurt. Uh, nothing yeah. to do with my dad. Then your father or whoever it is becomes what the Buddhists call benign indifference, like watching a wall, neither positive nor negative. Now, the anticipated question is, okay, what if, because forgiving requires reconciliation or not? You don't want to reconcile with a rapist, but you might want to reconcile with your mother, for example, because you, you say, I, I, can, I can deal with my mother. I, now that I've liberated myself, I can deal with her. If you reconcile, you have to reconcile with new limits that you don't allow yourself to be toxified. So what you do is you ask yourself, uh, if let's say it was abandonment, how can I commit myself with benign boundaries? Which means that if I used to see her seven days a week, I see her once a week for two hours, and in, that, in those two hours, it's quality time. But what happens with toxic people is they can't handle love for a long period of time. And, it's, and, and after two hours, she'll say, um, Tammy, um, you don't look so good. That's the time when they're saying, 
I can't handle any more joy. Stop. Yeah. And you don't stop. You keep going. And you start getting angry and you buy into what they want. They want you to get angry, so you leave them alone. At that time, yeah, um, well, I, f I feel pretty good, but uh, mom, I got to go. I love you. I got to get going. If you don't, you buy into the toxicity. You enter toxicity. Now, Mario, it's interesting. You know, you use this example of a rapist, which is a pretty intense example for us to be talking about in terms of the biocognitive forgiveness process. But what I notice when I imagine that kind of thing, I have incredible anger. Yes. So I would be able to follow your process, I think, and acknowledge my own strength and capacity for healing and feel grateful for that. But I still am wildly angry. Well, that's, that, that, that's, a, that's also a very good question. What happens, though, is you're angry for the act. That person continues to be worthless. But part of the anger is um, augmented by your disempowerment. So as you empower yourself, as you're liberated, that person loses the power that they had over you, and it's easier for you to let go of the anger. That person, you can continue to be angry, but it won't hurt you anymore because you, it's not an, an overwhelming anger connected with disempowerment. But what you'll find, and the experience that I've had with many, many people that I worked with who raped, and, is that they're no longer that important anymore. And I'll give you a concrete example. It wasn't a rape, but it was this, this centenarian had been in a concentration camp in, in, in Auschwitz. And um, I asked him, uh, have you forgiven those people? He said, well, let me tell you what I did. Um, I remember that what I remember most is that there was an, a kid who was in the army, uh, Nazi army, and he would come in and he would sneak up some food for me. He was my age. He was, he was 18 like me. That's what I remember the most. This kid saved my life. I made a friend in the concentration camp. So I said, I asked him, what, what about the people that were hurting you? Those people were SOBs. They continue to be that. But do you think I'm going to waste my time with putting energy into those people? So basically what he was doing indirectly is that he re-empowered himself with an act of kindness, saw gratitude, and the gratitude allowed him, it allowed him to then um, take the intensity away from those people. That they're not worthy in a sense, on an experiential, not worthy of you wasting time with those people. What, you, what it is worthy to think of that person that actually helped you. And then when I talked to him about the, you know, the process, I said, ah, oh, that's just too, that's just too scientific for me. I just did it. But he had done it. Yeah. He had done the process in a, in a, you know, in a very um, subjective way. Yeah. But you, what you find is that as you do that, the intensity of the anger is manageable, and gradually you'll come to the understanding that you don't need it anymore. The anger comes because you're, you're still holding on to the disempowerment that that person created for you. Yeah. Once you're empowered, uh, it's like after you eat, you're, you don't, you're not that hungry anymore. Or if you have ice cream every day, you're not going to want to have ice cream if you had too much. That kind of mindset. It, it seems to me that one of the themes that actually runs through all of your work and through this conversation we've been having here is empowerment. Yes. That that's, that, that if I had to sum it all up, and I'm curious what you think about that. On target. Empowerment. The, the, let's say the immune system works bipolarly. Empowered or disempowered. You can teach a rat disempowerment. You can teach physiological helplessness. You can put them in a paradigm where it's called non-escape paradigm. You can put them in a, in a paradigm where they get shocked and shocked and shocked and, um, and they have no escape. You inject them with cancer cells, they grow. You empower them, which empowerment means very clearly access to the resources to overcome a challenge. That's empowerment. You teach a rat to press a lever and, uh, or, or press a button and uh, they're no longer helpless. You inject them with cancer cells, nothing happens because the immune system goes back to empowerment and it takes care of the precancer cells. So yeah, em empowerment is really the key. If, if I were to summarize, I would say for longevity, empowerment and healthy uh, limit setting and forgiveness. But forgiveness in the way that I talk about it, not intellectually. Now, when you first started talking about forgiveness, you described our role in the forgiveness process as realizing that we're the director of the play. Yes. And I just wanted to explore that for a moment. We didn't write the play. The, the writer is different than the director. Uh, yeah, but we're the writer and the director. We're both. Yeah, we're both. Okay. Because, uh, and I'll give you an example, twins who have been abused, one would see it as betrayal, 
and the other one is uh, abandonment. So it's very subjective what you put into that play. Not only are you the, the writer, but you're also the director. But what happens is we forget that we're the writer and, we, and certainly we forget that we're the director. We felt that the play was written for us and we disowned it. Right. So obviously it's it. hard for me to, to get into the biocognitive experience of forgiveness because I keep thinking, I wrote that? Really? What you wrote is the interpretation of what happened. Okay. You wrote the interpretation uh, because that's what you, the best you could do. You know, somebody hurts you and you don't know all these processes. So you, you are disempowered and, you, and when you're disempowered, you think that that person took something away from you. They didn't take anything away from you. You contextualized it that way. And when you contextualize it that way, the good news is that you can recontextualize, but not intellectually. Mm -hmm. So you're the writer with the help of the other person, of course. The, let's say the, you're the co-author of the play and the director of the play would be even a better way to put it. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad you brought that up because that helps me understand it better. Well, and it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you don't ever think somebody needs to stay in any type of interpretation that keeps them a victim of anything. Well, you do, and I'm glad you said that. Okay. You, you have to feel sorry for yourself sometimes, and you have to feel like a victim sometimes. But once you get out of that, if you don't get out of that, then you go into victimhood, and victimhood is not good for your health. You're a victim. You were abused. Uh, someone took advantage of you. You're a victim. You're victimized. But if you go into victimhood and you use that to manipulate the world and get what you want out of your weakness, then that's not good. So, so how do you define victimhood versus just recognizing I was a victim of this situation? Well, you, you mourn when it happens. But if it's 10 years later, it's too late. It's gone. You can mourn it. You can say, okay, I never mourned what happened to me. I'm going to feel really sorry for myself. And I'm going to feel very weak and I'm going to feel used, and I'm going to feel all that pity. Good, I'm going to feel that. All right, after I feel it, and I, and I promise you, if you do it for 10 minutes, it's more than enough. Once you pay attention to it, it's like somebody knocking at the door and you let them in, and they don't, they don't knock anymore. And once you do that, it's okay. Now, I was victimized, but I'm not going to use that victimization or, or that, that, that creating a victim to manipulate the world and how have I manipulated the world all this time? How have I done that? Uh, I remember that for a while I played with uh, the ethnicity. Uh, and by the way, uh, Hispanic is not a race, it's an ethnicity. Uh, but I would say, oh, because I'm Spanish, I, I didn't get that. And when I caught myself with that, what, what's this? And what, what is this ethnicity thing? And the moment that I realized that, not only was I able to get things, but people no longer saw me as an ethnic uh -huh. Because you, you, you create that co-authoring with other people. Yeah. It's like people who say, um, hi, my name is such and such, and, uh, and I was raped when I was six. It's saying, hey, don't, get, don't, don't bother me because I was abused. Yeah. Or uh, I am, um, uh, I, I'm Hispanic, so uh, you know, just uh, give me a break. No good. In fact, I go even further than that, and I say to people who are given senior discounts not to take them. Because the money they save, they'll, they'll, they'll have to spend it with people like me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so just don't take it. Um, and, and, and if you need it, you need it. But, but don't buy into, because time has passed, getting back to time and space, I deserve something. Because you're paying the price. It's not without an agenda. You're paying the price because they're saying you're too weak or you're not able to earn your own money, so we're going to give you a handout. And that's not good. It's not healthy. Centenarians never take those advantages. When they say, uh, we have a senior citizen, no. Give it to the senior citizens. What if I just want to save the money? You can, but be, be aware and be careful that there's an agenda. There's a, there's a bioinformational field that, uh, uh, and if you want it, for example, if you want it, take it and give it to somebody else. But don't buy it because you buy the portal. Uh -huh. You see, when you buy the portal, it, it's too powerful. The culture's more powerful than we are. Because, you know, people that, that change their diapers have a lot more power than anybody else. So you have to learn strength before you can do those things. I think. Mario, our program's called Insights at the Edge. And what I would be curious to know in terms of your learning edge or growth edge, if you will, is in terms of the subtitle of your book, How to Change the Beliefs that Limit Your Health, Longevity, and Success. Would you say that there's a belief 
that you're still currently working on that you could see perhaps has been limiting your health, longevity, and success? Like, this is my edge. This is the belief that I'm still fully liberating myself from. Well, as I work with this, I'm I'm constantly challenging myself because somebody will say, um, uh, well, um, this isn't going to work or uh, you're too old or whatever. I I have to always embody it. So what I'm saying is that you're never perfect. You you don't want to be perfect. You want to approximate perfection. Perfect is very boring. So I, I never know everything. I'm constantly approximating. It's just that it hurts me less and less each time and allows me to be more and more productive each time. So it's not like I'm not hurt when somebody says, uh, you can't do this. It, it, it bothers me. But I have the tools not to get out of it quickly and not spend a lot of time. So it's, it's a challenge because the brain was made to be incomplete, to constantly be challenged. You don't want to get to perfection. It doesn't exist, but it, the brain will stop functioning if you do that. Uh, the challenge is, in here, for example, my challenge, how could I be crystal clear with Tammy? How could I learn to explain, explain it even more clear, clearly? And how could I make it practical for people? And each time I do it, it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. So uh, your questions make it easier for me to learn. Okay, I want to ask you one more question before we close, Mario, because I realize in the conversation about forgiveness, one of the pieces that I'm not clear about is how a lack of forgiveness actually affects my health. I've heard this a lot. I've heard that you can even see people who have had incredible healings when forgiveness has taken place. So how does a lack of forgiveness affect my health? Well, uh, that's a great question. What happens when you are in a non-forgiving mode? Not only are you carrying some anger with you, and and it's like in the background. I noticed that, yeah, as we were talking, yeah. But you're also (laughs) vigilant to not get hurt that way again. Yeah. So two things are happening. As you're in the, uh, what I call the, the hyper-alarm, uh, hypervigilant, you need, you need biology to keep you hypervigilant. You need a little bit more cortisol. You need a little yeah. bit more of adrenaline. And what does that do to the body? Uh, it, because the body, cortisol's great, adrenaline's great, but to process it and let it go. But what if you keep it at a chronic level? That's when people uh, can be hurt uh, uh, health-wise. When you let go of that, the energy that went into creating the hypervigilance and all the cortisol and all the uh, uh, nor- norepinephrine and all the things that you're secreting, no longer need it. It'll be contextual. You'll only need it when you get righteously angry. Righteous anger is good for you. Righteous anger is the protection of innocence, your own and somebody else's. Good for the immune system. When it's chronic or out of context, not good for the immune system. In the beginning of our conversation, the very first question I asked you, Mario, was how we're expanding the conversation with your work in biocognition to not just be about mind-body, but to be about mind-body culture. We have to understand this cultural element. And in your work, I was exposed to words I'd never heard of before, cultural neuroscience and cultural psychoneuroimmunology, that these are, are new fields. And my question is, how is it that for so long the culture wasn't part of conversations about mind-body health. How could we have been exploring these issues? Maybe it's just my own ignorance, but how is it that the culture was left out of these conversations? No, no, you're right. It was. And when I began to look into it, I asked myself, how is this possible? Let me look up biocultural and, oh, let me go, let me Google Martinez, Martinez, Martinez. There was nothing. Yeah. So what was going on is that disciplines weren't talking to each other. Psychonomenology was not talking to anthropology. Neuroscience was not talking to cultural psychology. So what I tried to do is to create a meta-paradigm that says, okay, if, neuro, if, if psychoneurology tells you that the mind and the body are connected because of the processes that we know, uh, then how does culture affect that? How does, how does a culture conceptualize illness, uh, aesthetics, and all those kind of things? And how does the brain learn in a culture? Well, cultural neuroscience. And what I'm pro- my, propose, my proposal for uh, psychoneurology is cultural psychoneurology. My, my mentor was George Solomon, who was one of the pioneers in psychoneurology. He called it psychoimmunology at first. And of course, they almost laughed him out of UCLA. Ten years later, Bob Ader came on. He said, not only is it psychology and the immune system, but the nervous system, so they call it psychoneuroimmunology. And it went on from there. I think the next step is it needs to become cultural psychoneuroimmunology. 
Yeah, but it really is because because disciplines weren't talking to each other, and the the information was all there. And what you do is you put it together. Well, I'm deeply appreciative of your work. As I said in Thank the beginning, you. I think you're a wildly original thinker, and you're bringing, I think, the whole field of exploration of mind-body health a big step forward into mind-body culture, understanding. Thank you for the opportunity and for the vehicle you create for people like myself who are trying to convey something. Mario Martinez, the author of a new book, The Mind-Body Code, how to change the beliefs that limit your health, longevity, and success. Thanks, Mario. It's Thank great you. to be with you. Thank you. Pleasure. Soundstree.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.